And now, five memorable screenplays that were original in every sense of the word, imaginative, distinctive, and new. Here are the nominees for original screenplay. Michelle Azanavicius for The Artist. Annie Mumolo and Kristen Wiig for Bridesmaids. Yes. J.C. Shandor for Margin Call. Woody Allen for Midnight in Paris. Ashgar Faradi for A Separation. And the Oscar goes to... Hello there, all you elitist, East Coast, alternative, left-wing intellectuals. And welcome back to Spro and Lee Take on the Academy. The best and most esteemed podcast for Academy Award do-overs. I'm Lee. And I'm Spro, and we're here to rewrite Oscar history one gold man at a time. We're also here to take yet another Academy Award away from a creep. Lee called Kevin Spacey Uncle Bad Dutch, but because today's target is more familiar, familiar, it makes it even more, uh, ew. Ew. Ick, as, ew. as the kids say. Oh, yeah. And speaking of ick, got some bad news, unfortunately. Normally, for these quickies, we have our old friend, not, she's not old, well, I guess we're all kind of old. But we're old. She is a friend from the olden days, Emily. And Emily could not be here with us today. No, she's a busy bee with two little ones and a picket line, so we'll give her a pass. But when those kids are old enough, we'll make sure to remind them that their mother put them first, even over two of her oldest, dearest, bestest buddies. And by we, of course, you mean me. I will definitely <laughs> let those kids know. Well, the last time she was in town, she only invited you to breakfast, so. No. Just... <laughs> <laughs> All right. What are we doing here today? We are going after one of the directors in Hollywood that seemingly can't be touched. It seems like somebody will defend him based off of his previous work. I don't remember the last time I saw one of this man's films that I was like, oh my gosh, that's one of the greatest things I've ever seen. Who are we talking about? We're talking about Woody Allen, Woody Not in Paris. The Academy congratulates Woody Allen and accepts the Oscar on his behalf. Thank you. Woody Allen. Woody Allen. Yeah, I don't. I don't think he uh, he's made anything worth a damn since probably what Matchpoint. Matchpoint would be the last one that I went. I actually like that one. And even that one, it's not one that I'm like. I would love to watch two adulterers turn on each other and then one of them get murdered and then the other one gets. Oh, that and sounds up my alley. I kind of like. <laughs> I'll rewatch that one again. Well, this one sucks. And I know I said that about the Roman Polanski one. And thankfully, Emily was there to say, hey, you know, Chinatown is a great movie. Roman Polanski is a piece of shit. These two things exist in tandem. Woody Allen means more to me than Roman Polanski ever did. I thought that Annie Hall was so important when I first saw it. It was the first romantic comedy I ever saw where the two leads didn't end up together in the end. And while it was bittersweet... I felt okay about it. I felt like it worked. And I thought it, it was a wonderful commentary on just exactly how relationships go sometimes. So I got into him pretty hard. I own a bunch of his movies. I still think he's very funny. Quick with a one-liner. He was able to take sex and make it 
funny. And I guess growing up in an environment that sort of stifled sex. I always really appreciated Woody Allen for bringing it to the fore and making a joke of it. And I stuck up for him. And then I saw a picture of him walking down the road with that guy that definitely didn't kill himself. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, okay. You know, obviously anybody could snap a picture at any time. Doesn't mean that him and Jeffrey Epstein were buddies, but... I saw that and I was like, no, I think I'm good. I think I'm good on him. And it sucks. And I know we're all flawed. And this is one of the big deals that I have with you. You're so, I've used the phrase Old Testament before. What's a good word? Vengeful. You're very, you're a very vengeful person. Would you, is that fair? I'm apathetic to taking the pearls away. I'm not out here with a flaming sword trying to kill these people off of the world. I just don't believe that any of these people that we're going after, any of these people that we talk about, any of these people that have more rooms in their house than they have years of their lives. Like, I don't think any of these people necessarily need any of this stuff. They don't deserve any of this stuff. Nobody deserves anything but life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. To think that people deserve to be celebrities is really weird to me. And the whole cancel culture thing, like, I was like, yeah, it's weird. It looks like it could get crazily out of hand. But then when the celebrities were like, hey, guys, can we ease up on the cancel culture? I'm like, well, of course, you assholes, because people want to take your purse strings away. But in the same instance, those kids working fast food at 40 hours a week, yes, they deserve to be able to afford their lives. Those people who work for two months out of the year on a set with catering and air-conditioned trailers and stuff like that, do they deserve $20 million a year? No. Get the fuck out of here. So if you told me to judge some rando on the street, I could not do it. you telling me to judge these people at the Academy Awards, I could do it in a heartbeat and not feel any regret about it. Well, I guess why I like doing these episodes is because the Academy never acknowledges... Like, hey, we had Harrison Ford give an Oscar to Roman Polanski when the motherfucker couldn't even come back into town. That's not just an Academy problem. That's a Hollywood problem. The fact that there are apologists across the board for these people is weird. So the Mm. reason that I will continue to do these with you is because somebody needs to. I like it. But this episode might have a twist ending. I'm throwing that out there right now. Okay. Let's get into it. Mm. Woody Allen is our mark today. So up until now, if you're one of our avid listeners, you know that we have gone after Harvey Weinstein, Kevin Spacey twice, and Roman Polanski for their crimes. Some are alleged, some were proven in court, and others, well, the accuser died before receiving any justice. So, but today, we've set our sights on Woody Allen, whose crime is one he repeatedly denies. But much like another famous musical celebrity who was never convicted of molesting a child, His behavior with other children is just too creepy to deny. Lee and I worked and work with children. We both know the extra responsibility males must make in order to not be given an accusation. Males and children will always be scrutinized more than females. And if you're like, I know, and that's not fair, we'll suck it up, buttercup, and shoulder the responsibility. It's the world that we live in. We like to bookend these episodes with the accusations so the audience is reminded that despite most of our decisions being in jest, we aren't putting these episodes on because we take any of this lightly. I've always said rape is the worst crime we can inflict on another person. Rape and mutilation. Two crimes a victim has to live with for the rest of their lives. Two crimes that leave scars, mental, emotional, physical. Perhaps it's my own scars showing here as we have these quickie episodes. First, let's talk about what Woody says he didn't do. Let's be clear about this before we get a stuttering neurotic letter from Woody Allen denying the following allegations. In 1992, 
a seven-year-old Dylan Farrow, Woody Allen's adoptive daughter, note the adoptive daughter part for later, alleges that Woody sexually molested her in the home of her adopted mother, actress Mia Farrow. This allegation thrusts us into a world of family turmoil where the Connecticut state attorney investigated the allegation but did not press charges. Dylan went to the child sexual abuse clinic of Yale New Haven Hospital, which concluded that Woody did not abuse Dylan and the abuse was, quote, probably coached or influenced by Mia, end quote. And the New York Department of Social Services found, quote, no credible evidence to support the allegation. So let's be clear. Woody denies the allegation of sexual abuse and Mia has actually been accused of child abuse by her two adopted children, Moses and Soon Yi. Okay, but are we going to talk about Soon Yi? Yes, we'll get there. Woody Allen and Mia Farrell were together from 1980 to 1992. Mia came into the relationship with seven children. She was her own Brady Bunch, three biological sons, three adopted girls, and one adopted boy. In 1985, five years after they got together, Mia adopted Dylan. Not Mia and Woody, just Mia. Fucking complicated. And it seems at this point, Woody would spend more time at Mia's home. The whole horde of family members taking trips to Europe together as well. Although somehow the courts concluded that Woody, quote, remained aloof from Mia Farrow's other children, except for Moses, the adopted boy to whom he was cordial. I don't, I don't know how you go on a family vacation to Europe with your longtime girlfriend and her like nine children and only are cordial to one boy. <laughs> That's just, this whole thing is fucking crazy to me. They must have spent some time together because in 1987, Mia gave birth to their son, biological son named Satchel. <laughs> Satchel. Satchel would grow up to be Ronan Farrow. He changed his name. Totally agree with the decision. <laughs> And Ronan Farrow, if you know now, who helped take down Harvey Weinstein. Six years later, in 1991, Mia wanted to adopt another child, and Woody made a deal. Quote, you could adopt another, but I get to adopt two of your kids, Dylan and Moses. If we're keeping track, we're up to nine kids. Woody has one and wants to share ownership of two others. Mia wrote to the judge praising Woody, saying, Mr. Allen is a loving, caring, attentive parent to Dylan, and she can only benefit from having him as an adopted father. So Mia's allowing Woody to adopt Dylan is in direct contradiction to Dylan and Mia's story that in 1987, Mia started to not like Woody and Dylan's relationship. She felt Woody was overbearing to Dylan, not giving her breathing room. She cites that Woody would read to Dylan in his underwear. He would have Dylan suck his thumb. He would sit on her bed in the morning and wait for her to wake up. Mia alleges Dylan once locked herself in the bathroom for four hours when Woody came to see her and he would eventually have an employee pick the bathroom door lock with a coat hanger. I want to make this whirlwind as clear as possible because if what Mia and Dylan says is true about Woody Allen, that also means that Mia was complicit in this whole affair. If Mia worried for four years that Woody was having an inappropriate relationship with Dylan and then promoted his adoption of her, she shares some of this blame. Anyway, Mia accuses Woody of a bunch of things, saying she thought he might abuse Satchel. She worried he had a sexual relationship, quote, with another man, end quote. The family psychologist told the courts that she didn't see Woody's behavior as sexual, but that his attitude toward Dylan was, quote, inappropriately intense because it excluded everybody else, end quote. Allen said he had to be that domineering over Dylan because Mia was spending so much time with Satchel, which there's seven other fucking children, mind you. <laughs> ah, Jesus. Now the allegation. Trigger warning. So on August 4th, 1992, Woody visited his children at Farrow's Connecticut country home while Mia and a friend went shopping with two of the most recently adopted children, Tam and Isaiah. The rich are never really alone, so Alan was at the house with Dylan, 
Satchel, a babysitter, a French tutor, Pharaoh's shopping friend's three children, and Pharaoh's friend's babysitter. Moses might have been home. That's disputed by Mia and Moses. So damn near over a dozen people were at this house. Pharaoh's friend's babysitter told Pharaoh's friend that she had seen Woody kneel on the floor in front of a seven-year-old Dylan and had his head in her lap, his face buried in her body. Dylan also told Mia this, saying the girl did not like it. Pharaoh was advised by attorneys to take Dylan to a local pediatrician where no report of abuse was filed. Mia then videotapes Dylan making a confession that Woody had in the past touched her private parts in the family attic. There's even a story where Woody told her to lay down on her belly and focus on an electric train set, whereas he pulled down his pants behind her. But, and this is where we must stop, because everything about these allegations is a hellhole of a divorce scape. Woody and Mia never married, but they had and acquired children together. Mia's definitely a woman scorned because of how the relationship ended, and there are a lot of reports that she coached Dylan into recreating these allegations against Woody. Some of her children deny Woody as an abuser. Some of her children even point fingers that Mia herself was a physical and mental abuser. We came to this episode because of these allegations, and after research, I cannot say one way or another that these allegations are indicative of an actual crime. I cannot, but two things are true. Woody did something creepy, which we'll get to at the other bookend of this episode, and two, just because the allegations turned our attention to taking this Oscar award away from Woody, and after our research shows that maybe Woody didn't actually molest Dylan, doesn't mean that this Oscar was deservedly his. In fact, I can't tell you whether Woody molested a seven-year-old Dylan, but what I can tell you, without a question in my mind, he did not earn an Academy Award for screenwriting in the year of our Lord 2012. Now, listener, you might be wondering to yourself, how are they going to bounce back from all of that awfulness? And I'm also wondering it. Maybe I'm projecting on the listeners. Jesus, man. Jesus Christ. Son of our Lord. The year of our Lord. I don't even know what year of our Lord 20... You said, like, year of our Lord sometimes, and I'm like, that sounds really cool as a way to, like, end my whole little speech there. That's from uh, Braveheart. Isn't it from the Bible? First time I heard it was Braveheart. Was that just... It's the very final... year? It's the final lines. In the year of our Lord, 1314. Patriots of Scotland, starving and outnumbered, charged the fields of Bannockburn. They fought like warrior poets. They fought like Scotsmen. And won their freedom. <laughs> they fought like but what does warrior mean? poets. I don't know. Is it like fucking... saying whereas instead of where? Just I think it's the same sort of like... Of it? It's the same sort of like, it's the king's speech. The year belongs to the lord. The speech belongs to the king. I don't know. Hmm. I'm going to try and transition. I don't know how. That was it's very <laughs> upsetting. So not only is this episode another in our quickie series where we de-Oscar past Oscar winners for being pieces of shit, but it's actually our second go at tackling a screenplay Oscar. I'm a slow reader and a slow learner. Those two probably go hand in hand. But the first time we did this, it was touch and go for me. And now... I feel like I'm getting the hang of it. I feel like I'm getting a little bit better at reading scripts. I might have even enjoyed myself a little bit this time around. So I do want to talk about script writing. Uh, Here's a little secret. I started writing a screenplay, like for real. Not, you know, we talked about that one in the last episode. What do we call it? Sober. Sober. Yeah. I started writing another one in my Google Drive, and I did not realize I had included it in our shared folder. But I included it in the Spro and Lee shared folder, and I told Spro I'd started writing something, and he's like, yeah, I saw it. I was like, the fuck you saw it? (laughs) He's like, yeah, it's in the thing. I was like, fuck! (laughs) And it's fucking hard, man. 
It's fucking hard. Like you sit down and you're like, I feel like I have something to say. It's still sort of globular. And, you know, I don't totally see the beginning, middle and end, but I see a strange shape. And God damn it, if you start off with a head of steam and just get to a point where you're like, I don't fucking care anymore. How many times? I want to know. Because you write these things for pleasure and for a living. How many times do you get to that point? Well, I don't. <laughs> no, but here's the thing. One, wow, I never started. Con- that was condescending. I was, that was a genuine question. <laughs> well, I never start a script without knowing words. I usually start at the end and then work my way backwards. I'll come up with an idea. Usually my ideas come from trailers, little short segments of movies, like little short scenes that you see. And then I go, oh, you know what would make a great movie based off of that one scene is this whole thing. And then I think, Interesting. well, who are my characters and who your characters are, are your beginning. And then how would this end? Like, what would be the coolest ending? And then you kind of piecemeal it together. The other thing I want to say is I firmly believe that writer's block is just boredom. You're bored with your own work or bored with the writing process, anything like that. People are like, oh, writer's block is a thing like stage fright or whatnot. I'm like, no, you just got to like either change your type of thinking or give up for a little bit. Walk away. Go take a walk. Go live your life. Have new experiences. Come back when you have something new to bring to the script. Take a breath. (laughs) Um, That's interesting insight. I did have another question for you, and it's kind of more... Did you just jump right into the script writing, or did you outline and everything like that? Jumped right in. I had a scene in mind, and that was sort of the the seed, if you will. Because one way to get over writer's block is to go back to your outline, or write an outline, and just be like, what am I about to tackle here? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Noted. So my second question is, and this is something that I was thinking the first time we did a screenplay episode, but I did not vocalize it. And I'm past the fear because I didn't didn't want to sound like an asshole or an idiot. No dumb questions. Yeah, I guess. I guess. (laughs) What makes a script good? Because I've heard you talk about like there should be more white space and there is black space. We talked a lot about it, but we never like there's nothing I can put my finger on. And I know that that's the liberal arts. But what is it that makes a script good? Two things. One, that it's competently written. You could tell that the screenwriter went through some kind of education and knows how to format, knows how to write, doesn't make the same mistakes that a lot of rookie writers would make. And we'll get into it because some of these things that we had to read has those in them where I'm like, man, I'm one semester into my master's of screenwriting so I can teach screenwriting. But there are a couple of drafts that we read that I was like, I could take a red marker to this all throughout and just be like there's widows here and whatnot like these little there's what things widows so is that just formatting mistakes yeah so with a screenplay all your page space is precious a widow is one word on its own line which is taking up a whole line of word space so if you have one word at the end of your action paragraph that is on its own separate line rewrite your whole action paragraph so you can get rid of that widow as they call it to save yourself on some page space as a grammar nazi myself and a former english teacher i understand what you're saying but are you being serious yes get the fuck out and being concise good formatting pushes scripts into the oscar noms here's the thing though when we talk about these writing oscar noms they have to request the scripts if they're going to read them and we already know that the academy award voters do not watch all the films required of them so to think that they're doing their due diligence and reading the scripts really what the voters are doing is they're watching the movie and being like 
oh, I really like that dialogue or I liked how that all unfurled on screen. But that has nothing to do with the words on the page. That has nothing to do with what the writer put out there to one, sell the script, two, get funding for the script, three, wow a director so they wanted to direct the script. All that stuff does not go into the decision of these best original and best adapted screenplay decisions, which you would think that it absolutely would. You know, if an editor, I know you're a film versus digital lover, and if it came out that this editor edited a film in the old ways of glue and tape and a cutter, I think that person should be given praise through the Academy than somebody that's doing it on a digital computer. It's the craft that they have to also consider. And I think that the Academy doesn't do this. They go, oh, what made me feel the best as I sat in the seats? And it's like... And that's, I mean, that's that's it. If I'm a director or a producer, I'm, I'm reading a bunch of scripts. I'm bored out of my fucking mind. I'm bored out of my fucking mind. And then, bang, I can't read this fast enough. Right. So I have one script out there that's being pitched and whatnot. And my manager and producer friends, when they give it to the talent and they give it to directors and they give it to financiers, they're like, just read the first seven pages. If you're not hooked in the first seven pages, you don't get it. You're not for us, you know? And we've attached actors in 48 hours that have read the first seven pages and was like, get me on this project. They say, if you can't grab anybody by your first 10 pages, they're not reading the rest of the script. There's contests that you hear about. They'll read the first page. And if they don't get just a sliver of feeling that you know what you're doing in the first page, they're not reading the rest of the script. You wrote 120 pages. And if your first page sucks, you're fucking out the door. And even that, like just giving all these Oscar voters the first 10 pages and be like, is this person talented? So to answer your question, there's a whole lot of skill. There's a whole lot of artistry that goes into and onto the page of the black and white page of screenwriting. And the second thing is subjective. I read over your notes. There are some things that grabbed you by the balls. You know what you like. And it's going to be across the board. I have never made it through To Kill a Mockingbird. I understand that it's it's not for me. Same with Catcher of the Rye. I glaze over. It's just all subjective. It's art, man. It's all subjective. But we could definitely say this craft is good, and that should be nominated. I have to train myself to not ask you questions like these anymore. <laughs> Jesus. All right. So you're saying little to no skill in Midnight in Paris. Oh, my gosh. Midnight in Paris. Yeah, I'm actually a huge Mark Twain fan. I, I think you can even make the case that all modern American literature comes from Huckleberry Finn. You box? No. No. I mean, not really, no. What are you writing? Novel. About what? It's about a, um, a man who works in a nostalgia shop. What the hell is a nostalgia shop? You know, a place where they sell old things, memorabilia, and... Uh, does that sound terrible? No subject is terrible if the story is true, if the prose is clean and honest, and if it affirms courage and grace under pressure. Now, look, there's a thing that I don't necessarily get yet about writers, directors, because the writers are writing up script because they know they're going to direct it. So I wonder if we should over scrutinize the end product knowing this. I will tell you right now, I know QT is your boy. I think QT is a much better screenwriter than he is a director. I love reading his work. Sometimes I don't like watching it. And then he wrote a novel and I was like, stick with screenwriting, please. And I hope when he retires as a director, he sticks with screenwriting. I would love a Star Trek Quentin Tarantino script. I would love to see his vision for all these things. 
But back to Midnight in Paris with Woody Allen. The first thing you notice about the script is that the scene headings say TBD because Woody doesn't know where he wants to shoot these things until he location scouts, which... Fine, understandable, and fucking lazy at the same time. The second thing you notice is the lack of action lines and how it's almost all dialogue. It's a play. It's not even necessarily a screenplay. Knowing that the main character of Woody's movies is pretty much always a projection of his own inner monologue, you kind of go, wow, this man really likes to hear himself or someone speaking like him talk. And you can't tell if he's directing them to act like him or if they're just like, oh my God, this is a Woody Allen movie. He used to star in all of his movies. I'm just going to do a Woody Allen impersonation. Yeah. And that's what, like you said earlier, you're like, oh, this hurts more than Roman Polanski. But I feel like Roman Polanski did different stuff where Woody Allen, you're always just going to see a Woody Allen feature. I think that's why I liked Matchpoint so much because it felt completely different than his usual style. His usual style is pretty good, but all right. I just brought up the script to look at it. Page one, um, exterior to be determined day. It goes right into the dialogue. There's like a parenthetical that says, having seen a panoramic view of, let us say, the Champs Elysee, we embark on a montage of the city. The comments offered above and following are an approximation of what the actors feel. And it's like, what the fuck? What? What is this? Like, this is a script writing. Champs Elysee. I don't know. I never went to France. Me neither. This isn't a script. This is a director's notes with dialogue attached. So I don't know for sure that anybody read this and said, I absolutely agree that this is the best script written this year. But if they did, I have a serious question of how or why. And I think that's another thing that would be amazing if we could ever get an Academy voter on the show to be like, why was this the best film? Why was this the best performance? It's the story idea. It's the notion that all human beings feel at one point or throughout their entire lives as though they were born in the wrong era. The decade that I wish I'd been born in when I was a little kid was the 60s. So I think that idea, which is so important to human beings, the looking back and the nostalgia for eras past, that somehow life would have been better lived had they been born some other time. I think that was what sparked people. Not necessarily the execution. I don't think it's an Oscar winning script, but I don't think it's a piece of shit. I don't... I'm not saying it's a piece of shit. You said it was a piece of shit. All right, well, if you deep dive the script... You find something interesting and unique, yet unoriginal and boring. At the Okay, it's a piece of shit. This script is a writer's dream. All right, if we're, if, we're going to, if we're going to examine it, and like I said, throughout this podcast, movies about Hollywood or writers or actors or anything like that of the sort need to be over-scrutinized, especially because the Academy turns to these films and goes, oh my gosh, I see myself in them. Of course you see yourself. It's a writer saying, oh, a chance to stroll Paris at night and get into a Gatsby-esque car and go back to the jazz age to sit with Hemingway as he waxes poetic about your own writing. Of course! How fucking original that Woody Allen came up with this idea. Oh, wouldn't it be great to go talk to F. Scott Fitzgerald and watch him and Zelda bickering to each other? Like, Yeah, but the 20s were a wild fucking time. Post-World War I, everybody was trying to create and live and love and fuck and drink. And it's made even more melancholy by the notion that the 20s ended with the Great Depression and led on to World War II. 
Do you wish that you had been born in a different era? Have you ever wished that? I don't wish that I was born in a different era. I just wish my era didn't evolve the way that it did. I love the 80s and 90s. I hate cell phones. Don't like the internet. Take me back to the 80s and 90s where we just left messages for each other. And there was rules that you didn't call during dinner or work. And it was like a seven to nine window where you talk to people. But for the most part, you hung out with your goddamn family. Give me those days back. Everybody has this thought of like, oh, I want to go back and live in these times. And da, da, da. This isn't original. This is the best original screenplay for an unoriginal idea. And there's no nuance to what the characters say. There's no subtext. Alan writes first level across the board. Oh, you hate your father-in-law's politics? Call him brainwashed to his face. You're unsure of your fiance's loyalty? Ask her outright. Why waste time with cleverness? It's not his best script by a long shot. And he's already been awarded twice. So it's not a thank you. There's no reason to give him this Oscar this year. I don't understand it. Hey, man, I would not have agreed to do this episode if I didn't agree with you. And I actually really like the last thing that you just said. So who's worthier? We read a lot of fucking scripts. Let's figure it out. So we have a list of 15 movies, Midnight in Paris being one of them. There's one that I'm like, eh. oh, there's two that I'm like, eh. I don't know why we had to read it. Yeah, there's plenty on here that I, A, didn't need to read, B, didn't need to watch, and C, don't need to talk about, so. Do you have anything to say about The Guard? Yeah, I really liked it. I thought it was. (laughs) You wrote it on the fucking list, didn't you? (laughs) Well, because it was nominated for a BAFTA. Well, it's Martin McDonough's brother. Who is it? Ronald McDonald McDonough? What's his? Yep, that's probably not it. (laughs) (laughs) It is John Michael McDonald. John Mike, there you go. Thank you. You ever been to the States? Yeah, once. Disney World. Well, you went when you were a kid with your family or something? No, no, this was last year. You went with a girlfriend? No, God, no. You went to Disney World by yourself? Yeah, great guy, so was. Got me a picture taken with Goofy and everything. He's my favorite, Goofy. You know, I can't tell if you're really motherfucking dumb or really motherfucking smart. I enjoy his dialogue. I think it's funny. I think it's daring. I think Brendan Gleeson is so fucking lovable. I don't think that it's an Oscar-worthy script. But I had a lot of fun. I enjoy the living shit out of it. You know what I was just thinking about? I'm going to give you... I'm going to print out some scripts. Like, some of my favorite scripts Please for you don't. to read. Please don't. Okay. <laughs> 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 Second to the bottom, to me, was Shame by Steve McQueen and Abby Morgan. And that's one that I would put way up at the top. Fucking hell, really? Yeah. Why is that? I read a lot of scripts for this episode. And you know, I don't like reading. I'd rather watch a movie or play a video game. Shame I couldn't stop reading. And I think it's also because I'm a pervert a little bit and there was a whole lot of sex in it. But what I liked about it was what I liked about another script that I can't wait to talk about. And it was the intimacy of the writing. It was not big and sweeping. It was incredibly focused. Two, three characters. I was very impressed with it. <laughs> What's up, man? Well, Steven said you wanted to see me. Yes. Uh, dude, nine o'clock this morning. Where were you? Dentist, root canal. Oh, shit, man. What did I tell you about that? Who'd you see? Gary Scher, uh, King's Practice, West 57th Street. Good, good. You're staying in the company health plan, I hope, right? Sure. That's what it's there for, man. All right, brother. 
Listen, one more thing. Your hard drive is filthy, right? We got your computer back. I mean, it is, it is dirty. I'm talking like hose, sluts, anal, double anal, penetration, interracial, facial, man, cream pie. I don't even know what that is. You think it was your intern? On my hard drive? Yeah, somebody's fucking with your account, man. We're blowing our wad in cash, you know? It takes a really, really sick fuck to spend all day on that shit. Awesome. And really, what I could say about it is very well written. The way that they stylized it with the bold scene headings and whatnot lets you kind of glaze over them, but at the same time, see what you needed to see to continue on. The action lines were very concise when we talk about action lines. So it's almost like every one of their action lines was a different, as it should be, a different shot of the camera. So the intimacy, and maybe it was my headspace, like the intimacy, I was constantly like needing to get myself back into the script. But I was also reading it 6.30 in the morning, waiting for kindergarteners to show up. So let's go to one that you wrote about. This one was a slog for me in a way. It just seemed super long, which was A Separation by Asgar Farhadi. This one, I liked the movie better. I liked watching the movie a whole lot better. The movie to me moved quicker. Whereas like reading the script, I was like, oh, man, there was so much going on at the beginning that I felt confused like all the way through of like who was in the family, what relation they were. I kept having to go back and being like, is this the person that was speaking at this point? Where in the movie, I was able to pick it all up. So A Separation is, for those of you that don't know, an Iranian film from writer-director Oscar Farhadi. It's about a couple who are beginning divorce proceedings. The wife wants to leave Iran because she justifiably wants her daughter to grow up in a less oppressive and dangerous environment. Her husband refuses to go with her because of his senile father and half-heartedly agrees to a divorce. It's a complex film. It deals with issues of class and religion and gender and age. And it's all under this umbrella of morality. It was considered one of the best films of the year by critics and filmmakers. In fact, before winning the Oscar this year, Woody Allen allegedly called Farhadi and congratulated him on what he called the best film of the year. I recognize talent in the script. It's an intricate family drama. I sympathized with the characters to an extent, but it was one of these kinds of movies that frustrated me. I can't suffer people unwilling to compromise, and I don't feel any different when I'm watching characters in a motion picture. Several of the characters in A Separation are stubborn, and from their stubbornness comes further conflicts, and it fucking frustrates the shit out of me. It is rare that I enjoy stories like that. Not to mention the film is fucking deadly serious. There are no moments of levity to release the tension. And if you're going to do something this realistic and this heavy, couched in such an oppressive regime, you have to give your audience a moment to breathe and relax. And I'm going to say one last thing, and this is probably a big source of the frustration. If my wife wanted to leave the U.S. for some other country because she felt oppressed and or unsafe, I'm probably following her. If one or both of my parents were senile, I'd try to arrange a way for them to come along. But if I couldn't, they're getting left behind. The whole predication of this story frustrated me. I mean, it was just an absolutely frustrating movie. It was kind of like watching Minari. Do you remember watching Minari and just being like, oh, I just want these sweet people to do well. I want something to go well for them. And then yeah. their fucking house burns down. Yeah, and then the fire starts. So two things that 
I could talk about with the screenwriting. One, if you disagree with one of the major decisions of the screenplay and of your lead character, it's going to be a tough hang. Just considering the fact you're like, well, I wouldn't do that. It's, it's like watching a horror movie. You're pretty much just waiting for the person to die because they're making all the decisions that you wouldn't make. The other thing about it and what you hit on that I couldn't place into words until that moment is when you are writing a script or creating a movie, you have to look at the two levels of hope and despair. If there is too much hope, you have to introduce despair. And if there is too much despair, you have to introduce hope. And that's kind of what you were saying. It was so intense and so heavy. You were like craving levity. And because you weren't getting the levity, you're like, gee, we're like, fuck me with this whole thing. So yes. But let me be clear also, separation, shame, the guard, we're talking about them first, still would put them over Woody Allen because Midnight in Paris just wasn't a finished script. Let's go to something happy after this. All right. Were you able to read Win-Win? I did. You wrote me, you texted me and was like, do I have to do Win-Win? And I was like, I think I said, yeah, or I think you should or something like that. And mainly because it deals with a high school athletic coach and I kind of wanted to pick your brain. I'm not a coach. But I observe and I monitor kids playing sports for like two hours out of every one of my days. I don't understand wrestling. It's not one of the sports that really like grabs me. This was like the funny version of Foxcatcher for me. I think movies about educators and or coaches, I'm done with them. And I could not shake this just absolute staunch refusal the entire time I read it. I mean, I love Terry as a character. Style-wise, this is class perfect. Reading it, I couldn't find anything that I would read ink. So here's another factoid. 50-50, Win-Win, and Young Adult were all nominated for Best Screenplay by the Writers Guild Awards. So it's funny to me that the Academy thinks it like knows better or something when they nominate things over what the Guild nominated. Much like the Directors Guild Awards, you know, like if the Directors Guild goes, this is the best director and the Academy is like, well, actually, we think it's these people. And it's kind of like, but the direct, like, I don't understand how any of that kind of makes sense unless they're all be like, well, they didn't get the Directors Guild Award. So let's give them an Academy. Like, I don't. There's some politics going on between all of these awards. Nobody's ever heard of the Writers Guild or their awards. Until this year, we won our strike, baby. You know what's the most important word in that headline? What? Strike. (laughs) Nobody's paying attention to anything else. Is the strike on or is it off? But the two things I could say is then when I watch the movie, Amy Ryan just makes any role that she plays so much better. I love seeing her on the screen. And the only thing that I'm really taking from this movie is the whole speech about... All right. I want to spend this week working on bottom position. (laughs) Stemler. Now, did you guys all see what Kyle did the other day? He exploded up, right? Kyle, show the guys what you did. It's kind of my own thing. Well, can you share it with us? But it's not even a move or anything. It's okay. All right. Well, I just tell myself that the guy on top's trying to take my head and shove it underwater and kill me. And if I don't want to die on bottom, I have to do whatever the fuck it takes to get out. Okay. So the move is... Whatever the fuck it takes, let's go. Let's work on it. Whatever the fuck it takes, let's go, gentlemen, up. Come on, guys. (laughs) So Win-Win is about a high school wrestling coach down on his luck who gets into some courtroom hijinks and then through that 
comes in contact with a boy who needs a home. So he offers his home, realizes the boy is like a wrestling prodigy. So then he introduces him to his team. It's like everybody learning from everything. And you just know that somebody's going to get their comeuppance. And there's a speech in the middle where he's like, teach my team how you won your last match. And the kid says something like, oh man, I just thought my opponent was going to drown me. And I just knew that I... I had to survive no matter whatever the fuck it took. And so then the motto of the movie was whatever the fuck it takes. And I like that message of a story, especially with high school kids. I always like when high school kids swear because they fucking do. And I hate like all the movies where it's like, oh my gosh, Jimmy. <laughs> like It's like, no, get the fuck out of here. <laughs> you mentioned two other movies that were nominated for the Writers Guild, 50-50 and Young Adult. Mm-hmm. Do you have anything to say about either of those? Fifty Fifty was a cute story. Agreed. Liked it a whole lot more than I thought I was going to. And absolutely loved Juno. Juno, to me, is Diablo Cody's whiplash. Have not seen anything of its ilk since. From either Damien Chazelle or Diablo Cody. Man, maybe we're finding more about what I like about scripts, but I love how embarrassingly private the young adult script is. I think the intimacy of Charlize Theron's character and and her relationship with both her old flame and this kid that she never knew, grown up and played by Patton Oswalt, that is the best thing that Diablo Cody has ever written. And I don't do well with, you know, the scenes where it's like, oh my God, everyone on screen is embarrassed and now we're over here at home sitting here embarrassed. Like, Meet the Parents to me is a fucking tragedy. Sure. Like, I can't do cringe. I feel genuinely bad for Charlize Theron in this movie. I relate to her in ways that I wish I didn't. She is so pathetic and so (laughs) self-centered. And the best part is she learns nothing. I hope you're eating enough in the city. You gotta start taking care of yourself, sweetie. You know, lean cuisine is not a meal. Yeah, I think I might be an alcoholic. (laughs) Very funny. You're not still pulling it, are you? Stop that. It's just that your hair is so beautiful. You know what, Mom? Can you please take down that photo of me and Alan? Which picture, sweetie? The wedding photo? We are divorced. We just thought it was a nice memory. Of my failed marriage? Well, the wedding wasn't a failure. Remember the tiramisu? I locked that on. Dad, he's my ex-husband. You're supposed to be on my team. He's a nice guy, that's all. I didn't know there were teams. Young adults up there for me as well. Fantastic. I feel less badly when we disagree because one of us is shitting and the other one is celebrating. So, two more... Martha Marcy May Marlene, which I really thought I was going to like more at the beginning and dropped out attention-wise by the end. To me, it was a slow boil that didn't really get anywhere. I have a hard time internalizing suspense when it's written. So like if I'm reading something and I am enraptured, it's more than likely because I'm like, oh my God, what is this person going to say now that this person said this? Or, oh my God, they're running because it's so important that they do this. And if they do it, what's going to happen? If they don't do it, what's... I'm completely plot driven. And with Martha... uh, 
Martha, Marty, May, Marlene. Watching it was more of an experience. Well, thought, and Elizabeth Olsen is just... Oh, of course. She's wonderful. I think everybody in the movie is wonderful. But this is a big point that I have realized from reading so many scripts from so many movies, some of which I've seen, some of which I have not seen. If you read a script for a movie that you've seen a bunch of times versus reading a script for a movie that you've never seen visualized, it is an entirely different experience. Now that I'm saying it out loud, I sound like a fucking... It's like, well, yeah, dude, read a book that's not been made into a movie. (laughs) (laughs) But there's, I don't know, maybe it's what you were talking about earlier with the structure and the form. It's like when you're looking at a script versus prose, it sets your mind in a different paradigm. This is the only script that I would not put above Woody Allen's Midnight in Paris. The movie is great. It's horribly written. It's the one that I was saying that I could write red pen all over it. Widows of Plenty. The time jumps are not clear. I got halfway through the script when I was like, I need to put on the movie and just kind of follow along because what they were presenting on the page just kept bumping me. And I was like, so wait, what time period is she back at the cabin? Is she with her sister in the future? All right. So transition wise, you're speaking my language for the Iron Lady. Okay. Well, yeah, let's bounce to that. If anybody is inspired to pick up a script after listening to these episodes. No one is. Oh, one person. I guarantee just one person. Scene headings are where new scenes, where new locations are introduced. And the beginning of it always has INT or EXT, interior or exterior. Where's the camera? Is it indoors? Is it outdoors? That's the first line. The second line is the location itself. Sometimes you do macro locations and micro. So macro would be New York City and the micro would be a cafe. And then next is the time of day. And it's usually day or night. So what the Iron Lake lady did, which I'm sure is going to upset Lee, was it hit its time period within that scene heading. And so it said either present or like a year. And so you had to really kind of like glob onto that to kind of know where you were, which... Once I figured that out, I was like, oh, I like because I love nonlinear stories. You know, like it was Memento that really like opened up my eyes to how much cooler movies could be if you didn't tell it in a straightforward manner. So I I like the bouncing back and forth, which kind of breaks up the fact that this is a biopic. It has what I like about Jackie and Spencer. You know, it's just that little sliver of life. But then the other half is a biopic. I'm an Anglophile. My mom's family's from Cornwall. I watched Aston Villa kick ass every Saturday. But Margaret Thatcher just isn't my cup of tea. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> Once upon a time, we were recording an episode and you made reference to a politician from Great Britain. Boris, is it Boris Yeltsin or is <laughs> Yeah. Is it Yeltsin, really? I th- no, I don't think. No, it's no, Boris Johnson. Johnson, yeah. Boris Yeltsin was fucking Russian or something. <laughs> and I only know this guy from photographs, and you're talking about his policy, so I think you read a whole lot more news than I do. I think you read a whole lot more than I do. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm watching this, and obviously I got the whole part about her deceased husband. Like That all made sense to me as a human being, and I really liked that part because I like Jim Broadbent and it was sweet and it was sad and her relationship with her daughter in present day was sad. Those were my favorite parts of the movie. You look and sound like a privileged conservative wife. We've already got her vote. You've got lovely hair, but we need to do something with it to make it more... Important. Yes, give it more impact. 
But the main thing is your voice. It's too high and it has no authority. Methinks the lady doth screech too much. People don't want to be harangued by a woman or hectored, persuaded, yes. That, oh yes, at the end of the interview, uh, that's authoritative, that's the voice of a leader. Quite. Well, it's all very well to talk about changing my voice, Mr. Reese, but for some of my colleagues to imagine me as their leader, it's be like imagining, I don't know, being led into battle by their chambermaid. That's my background and my sex. No matter how I've tried, and I have tried, to fit in, I know I will never be truly one of them. If I may say so, I think that's your trump card. And you were talking about linear versus nonlinear, and I mean, yeah, I'm all for jumbling it up. But every time they went into the past, it just, I have no knowledge base of Margaret Thatcher. So I was forced to be like, okay, so that guy wants, and then they're pissed about. And is that really the way that they do business in Britain, where just like people are just, who can yell the loudest in this room? Oh, my gosh. You've never seen Parliament? Oh, my God. That is yeah. insufferable. And then you got us in America just being like, <laughs> golf clapping everything around. And like half of oh, our I'm politicians not, saying not even that showing up. I am not saying that we've got it figured out. But it, watching that gave me icks. <laughs> they showed in the darkest hour as well. And that's why Winston Churchill was such a leader, because he could shout all those people down. Well, anyway, I liked most of the present day stuff. I think it's an ambitious script. Very hard to follow. You were denigrating Marthy, Marcy, Marcy, Mary, that one for the same thing that bumped me out of this one. Well, we have five left, four of them being nominated. Let's talk about Jeff Nichols's Take Shelter, which was not nominated. So this was... But, because you brought it up, I think with Martha, Marcy, May, Marlene, where you're like, I can't read suspense. And this script had me on the edge of my seat like the entire time with a coming dread that was just coming around the corner. To be absolutely honest, I didn't watch the movie for this episode. I didn't have to. The last time I saw the movie was probably about five to six years ago. But reading the script, I was like, man, I see everything that they put on screen. And I'm feeling everything that they made me feel when watching that movie for the first time. first time I saw anything about this movie was the trailer. And maybe you can relate. It was such a well done trailer. And I am such a fucking rube that if a trailer is well done, I'm in. And I get let down so many times, but I was not let down by this one. I was, I was captivated. I was spellbound. It taps into what I was talking about earlier, where it's a very intimate story, but it also manages this sort of universal thing in Michael Shannon's premonitions. Isn't there a word for bad premonitions? Before you get it, for those that don't know, Take Shelter is a 2011 American psychological thriller film written and directed by Jeff Nichols. Why are you going to snip my nuts off like that? I'm in the middle of... (laughs) Because it's got the word that you want. And starring Michael Shannon and (laughs) Jessica Chastain. The plot 
follows a young husband and father, Michael Shannon, who is plagued by a series of apocalyptic visions and questions whether to shelter his family from a coming storm or from himself and his increasing worries over having paranoid schizophrenia. Now you don't have to think of a word. Which word? (laughs) All you did was read the fucking thing. (laughs) Well, you and I have never talked about this movie. So I'm curious what you like about it. I know what I like about it. It shouldn't work as well as it did because it has some of those things that you see in other movies. The daughter, the learning sign language. Oh, his mother's sick, so he's probably going to be sick. You know, like it foreshadows a lot, which helps with like the increasing of the dread and everything like that. And you feel like you could predict where the movie is going to go. But for some reason, it always just slightly veers to the right where it keeps you on your toes and you're just waiting for the next shoe to drop. And then in the end, you're kind of wondering what journey you just took and how you should feel. What you're talking about is something that I said earlier. It's plot. It's story. You want to know what's going to happen next. And you said it's cliched that the daughter is deaf. It's not cliche. It's just it's a character choice that... Why do you do that, though? From where I'm sitting, I I know the exact reason why you do that. Oh, then just stop setting me up to fail in answering your question. No, I want to know. Because you're the fucking screenwriter. Tough guy. Why do you give them a hurdle? An obstacle? To go along with the theme? What's a practical reason why you do it? To make the character more interesting. So you don't have to write any dialogue so that it's just husband and wife and the kid is a silent bystander. Call it what you want, but it becomes Jessica Chastain and Michael Shannon going at each other. It's terrifying, horrifying, heartbreaking. What a fucking film, man. So I do have a friend that worked on this movie and I remember sitting down with him for bourbon. I remember him talking about this movie and saying, there is this woman who has red hair in the movie and she is going to be a fucking star. And he was talking about Jessica Chastain at the time. And she had only done like one other big ish movie called Jolene before this. And she blew up right after. And we talked her praises all over this podcast. So we'll try to get him on for an interview. We have four other movies to talk about. These are the nominateds, all right? I can tell you right now, I'd give Take Shelter a nomination. It's up there for me. You keep saying that this episode. I said about three movies. Three. Yeah. Keep saying it. Okay. Keep saying it. Fuck you. Let's talk about the artist that got an Academy Award nomination. I don't want to. How did you enjoy reading a silent film? I fucking... I didn't because it wasn't structured. This is exactly what you were talking about before with format. I can't stand that it looks like prose and not a script, not a screenplay. Yeah, buddy. The artist is Academy Award masturbation. Hollywood produced something that gave it its nostalgic feeling, much like Babylon, probably. And as somebody currently studying silent films, I can tell you that that's all this is. Because this script looks exactly like the silent film scripts from back in the day. But here's the thing. We advanced past this. There's no reason to go back. It's the 21st century. I had to look up and be like, did people really like The Artist as a movie? And somehow they did. But I feel like the only people that actually went out to watch it were people that studied film or people that critique film or people that work in film that just want to re-experience the silent film era. Yeah, I get it. It's a novelty film, right? Yeah. I mean, reading this, it was like having somebody tell you everything that happens in a movie. It was totally unappealing. 
And if given the opportunity, I would pull this nomination completely. I'm with you. Like, I, it's only 40 pages. Like, when I opened up the document, I was like, oh, nice. This is going to be a nice quick read. Because, of course, we do a lot of research for this episode. We read a lot. So any of the scripts, Martha, Macy, Magdalene, whatever, was 87 pages. I opened it up. I'm like, sweet. But it was it was a poorly written 87 pages, to be honest. When it was 122, I was like, all right, give myself a little bit more time with this. Regardless, the artist took me like... Like a couple days to get through. I don't think anybody that feels like they press for time is going to read the artist to give it an Academy Award. So I don't think the Academy read Midnight in Paris or the artist. People probably read Midnight in Paris. Woody Allen's scripts are considered literature by this point. But you don't have to read them because okay. it's just the dialogue on the screen. He's not going to tell you, oh, they're walking down this street because he fucking doesn't know which street they're walking so down. So my point was... GBD, so actors my- walked down a street. I don't know. I agree with you, <laughs> dickface. And I think <laughs> the artist got caught up in, you know, oh, we're going to give it best picture. We're going to give best actor. We're going to give best director. It was, and, and writing got caught up. All right. Two left to talk about then. We got Bridesmaids and Margin Call. Which one do you want to talk about first? Let's talk about Bridesmaids. Okay. Written by Kristen Wiig. Love this woman. Also written. And? And Annie Momolo. And then actually Paul Feig is credited sometimes and not other times. But this is what's maddening about this Oscar. About scripts. I laughed out loud. And let me preface this. I saw this movie and then read the script for this episode. And reading the script, I was laughing out loud. And then I realize I'm picturing Kristen Wiig and Maya Rudolph in these situations. And it made me wonder, what's it like to read the script first? I've been watching movies my whole life. I never read the scripts. Is this a funny script? Or is it made funny by the performances that I remember? Is this a dumb question? (laughs) Not at all. In fact, most of the scripts we read for this episode, I haven't watched the films in a decade. So going off character names alone, it takes me a bit to remember who played who. And I, I wondered as I watched the film whether or not Melissa McCarthy's character, Megan, would have been as funny or funnier if not played by Melissa McCarthy. The blatant sexuality, the disgusting scenes, those all would have played differently if played by, say, like her cousin, Jenny McCarthy. All right. I'm glad to see you got a little bit of spark in you. I knew that Annie was in there somewhere. I think... I think you're ready now to hear a little story about a girl... A girl named Megan. A girl named Megan that didn't have a very good time in high school. I'm referring to myself when I say Megan. It's me, Megan. And I know you look at me now and think, boy, she must have breezed through high school. Not the case, Annie. No, this was not easy going up and down the halls. Okay, they used to try to blow me up. They threw firecrackers at my head. Firecrackers. I mean, literally, I'm not saying that figuratively. I got firecrackers thrown at my head. They called me a freak. Do you think I let that break me? Think I went home to my mommy crying, oh, I don't have any friends. Oh, Megan doesn't have any friends. No, I did not. You know what I did? I pulled myself up. I studied really hard. I read every book in the library, and now... I work for the government. I have the highest possible security clearance. Don't repeat that. Mm-hmm. I can't protect you. I know where all the nukes are and I know the codes. I have six houses. I bought an 18 wheeler a couple months ago just because I could. Okay, you lost Lillian. You got another best friend sitting right in front of you if you'd notice. Huh? Now you gotta stop feeling sorry for yourself. Okay, because I do not associate with people that blame the world for their problems because you're your problem, Annie. And you're also your solution. Either way, I think it's a very funny script. 
I don't understand how people write genre films like comedy and horror and sci-fi and fantasy or anything like that because you have to be as concise as possible while being funny in multiple different characters as well. I'm only funny in one way, probably dark comedy, but you can't have all your characters laughing at the person that just fell down the stairs. Writers who can write comedy, who can write horror, who can write all these different genre films. I'm in wow by. With modesty, I can say that I will never write a script as funny as Bridesmaids in my life. So kudos to these two ladies. Agreed. Let's move on. All right. Margin call. So Margin Call is written by J.C. Shandor. It's an imagining of what might have happened behind the closed doors of one major financial institution immediately prior to the Great Recession of 2008. This is my favorite of Shandor's films. And reading the script while watching the film just reinforced how much I loved it. Because it's a film about Wall Street, there's like jargon to sift through. So you got to pay close attention. You got to make inferences. But the fact that even behind closed doors, none of these fuckers can ever speak plainly. They're so fucking paranoid, somebody's going to implicate them. So their dialogue does this dance around these machinations. Meanwhile, the audience is in the dark, trying to decode what's being said by these fucking sociopaths. So in that sense, the script asks a lot. And the film itself probably demands multiple viewings, but I really like that. I love this nomination. It's just money. It's made up. Pieces of paper with pictures on it so we don't have to kill each other just to get something to eat. It's not wrong. And it's certainly no different today than it's ever been. 1637, 1797, 1987 and there have always been and there always will be the same percentage of winners and losers, happy fucks and sad sacks, fat cats and starving dogs in this world. Yeah. There may be more of us today than has ever been, but the percentages, they stay exactly the same. I'll do it, John, but not because of your little speech, but because I need the money. Hard to believe after all these years, but I, I need the money. Yeah, absolutely. And I think 
Because that's what I like about the spy films, like the Russia house, where you're like, it's just them fucking just like talking. Yes, but you had to like sit there and try, try to figure out what they're talking about. And this film does that. You hit on a good point that I think what the script does really well is the technical jargon, which probably isn't jargon. It's not for us to know. But if you're going to write about a specific topic, you need specifics about that topic that may or may not go over the audience's head. These people have to feel like they know what they're talking about. And if I'm going to watch a film about something I don't know, I almost don't want it explained to me like I'm a moron. I want you to immerse me in the world and let me just be a fly on the wall and try to keep up. There's a lot of films about Wall Street and there's a couple films about the collapse of 2008 and all of them make me angry. Not because the films are bad, but because I don't think we will ever get a film about Wall Street that doesn't make us finally regulate Wall Street. Even though we're being shown, hey, look, this is how things are going horribly wrong in this institution. And we go, that sucks. But man, this was a nice, quick thrill ride of a read. I think I liked reading the script more than watching the movie because I felt like I got more out of the script. But I think, yes, it absolutely deserved the nomination. I agree with you. All right. So that brings us to the end, right? Yep. That is all of the scripts that we came to talk about today. So to find out who we would award over Midnight in Paris and Woody Allen, do you have your top three? Yes, tentatively. You're number three. Fuck. I'm just going to go from my heart, and I'm going to say Shame is my number three. By Steve McQueen and Abby Morgan. And I'm going to go with my number three as Bridesmaids by Annie Mamolo and Kristen Wiig. Number two. Number two. Margin Call. Easy. And actually, I agree with you. Margin Call is my number two as well. So you're number one. It's got to be Take Shelter. My number one is Take Shelter as well. Holy shit, did this movie. 6.30 a.m., got kids walking in that I'm supposed to be watching. I'm reading this on my Amazon Fire tablet. I am pacing around, making it look like I'm doing my work, but I am hooked. I don't know if I'm forgetting what I know is going to happen, but I'm not even thinking about predicting anything. I'm just letting the story unfold on the page. It's textbook writing. There's nothing about the writing that I could flag for being like, well, this isn't UCLA, USC. Stevens College Standards perfectly written and the fact that it wasn't nominated for Screenwriters Guild it wasn't nominated for BAFTA it wasn't nominated for Academy Awards makes absolutely no sense to me and so I'm glad that we are talking about it here on our show and this movie is subtle intelligent and beautiful I like it but it all starts with the script Central Ohio Film Critics Association nominated this for Best Original Screenplay. Good job, Ohio. So we're giving Best Original Screenplay of 2012 to Jeff Nichols for Take Shelter. I think there are two films, right? The Artist and... Midnight in Paris. That should not be nominated. If you look at our nominations, I'd say it's Take Shelter, Margin Call, Bridesmaids, Shame... And then a separation? Yeah. Like, just leave it up there because yeah. we're, we might have been too dumb to figure it out. To bookend the episode, so the reason why we came here is not taken lightly, this might be the most surprising thing about the episode. With all these quickies we're taking away from bastards, I don't, out of all my research, think 
Woody Allen molested his daughter, Dylan. We built this quickie series as a way to get the gold out of the hands of monsters and molesters and rapists. And after reading and reading and reading with my thoughts that Woody Allen was a child molester, my thoughts are merely this. Woody Allen and Mia Farrow are two individuals I wouldn't trust my kids with. Don't get me wrong. I have nothing against rich people adopting and collecting children like my father collected sports memorabilia because in today's age, the worst thing you could be born is impoverished. I remember being young and hearing that saying, give a man a fish, he eats for a day. Teach a man to fish, he eats the rest of his life. That day is gone. Now sell a man a fish and sprinkle additives on it so he feels he needs to eat and spend more than he should. If Woody and Mia want to rescue kids from the gutter, okay but neither protected the children from their weird-ass ways and eventual separation. And if we need to rake Woody over the coals for anything, it's that he met Soon Yi when she was 8 or 10 years old. And even if the court said, well, he wasn't really a father figure to her, even if nobody can prove they didn't sleep together until after she was 18, he still met the girl when she was his longtime girlfriend's daughter before she was a teenager. We adopt children to have them as family members. Anytime you have to say, but not by blood, to validate your sexual relationship, your sexual relationship should be invalidated. How Woody and Soon Yi started was she got injured playing soccer in 11th grade. So 16 years old, maybe. It's weird. Nobody really knows how old she is. She was either born in 1970 or 72. And when she graduated high school, she could either be 18 or 20. So in 11th grade, she's 16 or 18. Up in the air. Either way, I don't think it matters what age you are when you're still in high school, especially when you're starting a thing, a relationship thing, with a 54-year-old man. After her injury, he starts transporting her to school, and she starts going to Knicks games with him. Mia discovers they're having a fling. Woody cuts it off. But then Mia finds nude photographs of Soon Yi on the mantle, and this sets off this divorce breakup situation from hell where there's accusations all over the place. So because Dylan's charges of molestation didn't happen until Woody was being a weirdo with Soon Yi, I can't, as a jury member, convict Woody. But the whole thing with Soon Yi is gross. It's gross enough to say, hey, you two lovers, have fun. But we're not going to let you be celebrities or millionaires or make movies. You want to be gross little weirdos? Go off into the sunset. Nobody deserves to be a celebrity, which is what I said at the top of the show. They don't. And it's not like Woody Allen is super talented. He's good at what he does. But the moment he married his daughter, we should have closed the book on him and wished him the best. Soon Yi and Allen married in Venice on December 22nd, 1997, when she was 26 and he was 61. And they have adopted two daughters together. I think in the end, I turned to Ronan, aka Satchel, who regretted doubting his sister and mother's claims, but doubt them, he did. He's also very critical of Hollywood that seemed to discredit the claims and at the same time bolster Woody's denial, Hollywood protecting its own, as it always has. In the end, Ronan had this to say. In 2011, he tweeted, He's my father married to my sister. That makes me his son and his brother-in-law. That is such a moral transgression. In 2022, Woody Allen said he might retire after his film Coupe de Chance, his first French film, comes out. We should have never given him the chance. So bon voyage, Woody, et bonne chance. Well, I don't think anybody needs to say anything beyond that. So, for Spronly, take on the Academy. I am Lee. I am Spro. And we hope to see you sitting front row when the envelopes are red. For the first time in more than 25 years, Woody Allen's wife, Sunni Previn, 
breaking her silence about their relationship. It's made headlines for years. And tonight, new allegations against her adoptive mother, Mia Farrow. And tonight, many of Farrow's other children are defending their mother. Here's ABC's Ariel Reshef. The story rocked a family and made tabloid headlines. Director Woody Allen caught in a relationship with the 21-year-old adopted daughter of his longtime partner, Mia Farrow. More than 25 years later, Sunyi Previn is breaking her silence in an explosive interview with New York Magazine, saying Pharaoh emotionally and physically abused her, including slapping her across the face and spanking her with a hairbrush and calling her stupid and moronic. But Previn adds, I was never interested in writing a mommy dearest, getting even with Mia, none of that. She's also defending her husband of 20 years against allegations he molested Pharaoh's then seven-year-old daughter, Dylan. Allen was never charged and has always denied the allegations. He's lying and he's been lying for so long. Previn telling the magazine what's happened to Woody is so upsetting, so unjust. Mia has taken advantage of the Me Too movement and paraded Dylan as a victim. In the piece, the author acknowledging she's a longtime friend of Woody Allen. Tonight, seven of Pharaoh's nine children are standing with their mother, including son Ronan, whose investigative reporting helped spark the Me Too movement. Ronan Farrow calling his mother a devoted mom who created a loving home, adding, but that has never stopped Woody Allen and his allies from planting stories that attack and vilify my mother to deflect from my sister's credible allegation of abuse. And Dylan Farrow, who came out with allegations against Woody Allen, tells ABC News no one is parading her around as a victim, and she slams the magazine for what she calls a one-sided piece. And David, the magazine says this is Previn's chance to tell her story. Ariel Reshef with us tonight. Ariel, thank you. I'm tired, bro. <laughs> I guess that's the end of this of the season, huh? It's time for a nap. What do you say? I guess, man. <laughs> hey, man. I, I don't know what to tell you. Like, moving, changing jobs has uh, it's it's changed my whole circadian rhythms. So, uh, <laughs> so this is it. That's it. Yep. Season four in the bag. Yes. But we always have an interview to close out the season. Is there any interviews coming? We do. Up? We've got. Yeah, we've got we got one interview um, coming up with your buddy Bobby. We do. I don't know, I don't know why you're pretending like we don't have anything <laughs> left because you set this whole thing up. I did. Well, it's funny because back in season one, I think it was Take Shelter came up, and you said I love that movie, and I was like, I actually know somebody that worked on it. And it's funny how the world works because three years later, 
we're taking an Oscar away from Woody Allen and giving it to Take Shelter, not planned at all, and then just texted the buddy and said, hey, do you want to come on? And it took him like two weeks to respond and say, yeah, sure. Well, speaking of two weeks, we'll have that interview in two weeks. So we'll see you then. And then we'll really wrap this bitch up. Nope, because then we've got year in review and Oscars and et cetera, et cetera. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Are you going to be able to but survive? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'll get sleep. I'll actually get to sleep at nighttime. It'll be great. <laughs> Can't wait. Well, it's seven twelve at night. You should go to bed. <laughs> I should. You're right. <laughs> All right. You know what? You, you don't want to do your... You want me to do the outro again, even though I... Don't you? We No. Okay. Oh, ta-ta for now. You want to do... No. Because <laughs> this is the only one that we're doing. So take a bow and ta-ta for now. <laughs> <laughs>